Hey there. <clears throat> it's PNN. I'm Brooke Hines. I have a frog in my throat. Tonight we have a show. Uh, we've got uh, I've got some stuff on the force the vote. I have some really important information on new Russiagate. I got information on uh, how Facebook and uh, social media are. Uh, curbing freedom of speech and uh yeah got a few things i got a few things i'll be talking about also rick spizak has a short interview with professor jerry brown on a new class that he is teaching um having to do with uh hallucinogens you know he's part of this effort to jerry brown is professor jerry brown is part of this effort to uh bring hallucinogenic substances into a healthcare setting. And so he's, uh, he's, he will be offering a class on that in January. So we want to get the word out about that. And also lastly, tonight, Janine Moloff has a really awesome segment on how the, how Joe Manchin, Senator for, from West Virginia teamed up with the GOP to uh, put a vile liability shield into the uh, COVID relief package. So kicking things off, I want to say a little bit about this force the vote, which I'm going to cover here in a second. Um, The thing that really jumps out at me about force the vote is that the same people who said to hold your nose and vote for Biden that uh, he'd be moved left during his cabinet picks and everything. They're the first people who are jumping on this first uh, force the vote uh, uh, issue and saying uh, that they don't like who's talking about it. They don't like Jimmy Dore. They don't like Brianna Joy Gray or they don't like David Sirota, whoever it is, they're making it all about the personalities rather than the policy, rather than the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic and people are dying and they need health care. Um, so there's some interesting ways that uh, things are kind of shaking out given the uh, discourse right now. And, you know, I just want to say about that, I just want to say that to me, it's not about the personalities. To me, it's not about you know whether I like a particular pers- persona who is on YouTube or who is on social media. It is about the policy. And we owe it to the people we love to make sure that we're doing everything we can to uh, force uh, some sort of civilization over top of this uh, social conglomerate that we have right now and try to make things work and the best way that I know to do that is to fight for Medicare for all so uh, here's a here's a little piece on this force the vote issue all right big story this week is on force the vote and like most stories that we contend with over here on the left There's been a lot of uh, disingenuous mischaracterizations of what's going on here. So uh, let's 
air it all out. Let's let's just go through all of the different facets of this particular uh, uh, situation. First thing, on the 27th of November, yeah, November, Jimmy Dore, uh, who is a, a, a YouTuber, a YouTube pundit, comedian, he he made a proposal and he said, uh, hey, I got an idea. We need to force the vote on Medicare for all while we're all sitting around uh, quarantined during the pandemic. And so his proposal is for 15 uh, progressives. You know, there's 100 uh, some members of Congress in the progressive caucus, the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And he says, just give 15 or so progressive members of Congress to hold their votes for Nancy Pelosi for chair until we get a vote on Medicare for all during a pandemic. Makes sense. Here's what he said exactly. Some representatives. What? All that is required to get a vote on Medicare for all in the House of Representatives is for 15 congressional progressives to use their power. Will they? Because America needs Medicare for all right now. Okay? We're in the middle of a pandemic. As people are losing their employment, they also lose their health care. This doesn't happen in any other first world industrial country on the planet. And just so you know, what is happening right now, the government denying you health care in the middle of a pandemic, this is not normal. No matter what they say, this is not acceptable or normal. Congress just gave trillions of dollars to the top billionaires, subsidizing Wall Street's frenzy of profiteering while millions of families are on the financial brink. And so predictably, uh, people made this about Jimmy Dore rather than about Medicare for all and people dying during a pandemic uh, because they don't have health insurance, because they lost their job during a pandemic. And uh, it doesn't make any sense, first of all, for the United States not to have universal health care when every other country in the developed world has some form of single-payer health care. We don't. Uh, It definitely doesn't make sense during a pandemic because we have to make sure that everybody is uh, getting to the doctor and everyone's getting treatment and uh, getting tests, all of that stuff. But people wanted to make this about Jimmy Dore because Jimmy Dore is an easy uh, deflection. You don't have to talk about the actual issue if you're talking about the Internet comedian over here, the guy who, uh, you know, tells jokes and uh, is is loud and obnoxious because that's his job. That's what he does. He's a comedian. And uh, and really, it's not funny that a comedian that it takes a comedian to actually uh, get people off their butts to start fighting for themselves. But apparently, that's that's the case in the United States. Now, Jimmy Dore put the idea out there in terms of force the vote 
hashtag force the vote uh, using the vote for Speaker of the House as leverage. And a lot of different people picked up the ball and ran with it. Uh, now, uh, of course, with uh, Brianna Joy Gray, this has been her thing for quite some time. She was the communications director for the Bernie Sanders campaign. And the whole reason she got on the Bernie Sanders campaign in the first place was because of Medicare for All to, to work on this particular issue. Uh, so no one thinks that Brianna Joy Gray is coming out just to d defend Jimmy Dore because she defends Jimmy Dore. And they have actually had their own uh, um, uh, disagreements in the past, you know, as anybody does. People have disagreements with, with people uh, that they fight next to, to each other. So Brianna Joy Gray does a great article in Current Affairs, and you can go to currentaffairs.org and find this. You'll also be able to find a link in the show notes. And the, the article is entitled, The Case for Forcing a Floor Vote on Medicare for All. She just gets right to the point. And let's remember that as uh, COVID raged across the country in the spring, uh, now President-elect Biden said then that he would veto Medicare for All if it were to pass the House and the Senate. Uh, it's also interesting to note that Joe Biden also received more money from insurance and pharmaceutical industry employees than any other candidate in the race. And a senior advisor is a former healthcare lobbyist. During the primary, uh, there was a lot made of how Joe Biden received uh, the vocal support of Representative Jim Clyburn of South Carolina. And, um, you know, a lot of people wanted to make that about race, but there's a strong case that the reason why Jim Clyburn supported Joe Biden is because they are on, they're in the same corner on Medicare for all. Uh, they're, they're in the corner opposite us as, uh, to, to be quite, and recall that supposedly South Carolina was important to Joe Biden because he hadn't won anything. He'd come in fourth in uh, most of the content contest up until South Carolina. And so Jim Clyburn from South Carolina uh, vocally supported Joe Biden. And supposedly that's what lifted him out of the, the doldrums in his campaign. Now we all know that that wasn't it, that it was, it had more to do with uh, Barack Obama making people, calling people, encouraging them to drop out of the race and clearing the way for Joe Biden. Um, but Jim Clyburn is important because he is the single highest recipient of pharmaceutical money in Congress. Now that, that fact is, is really astonishing because Jim Clyburn is from South Carolina. He's not from Massachusetts where there's a lot of pharmaceutical, uh, a lot of density in pharmaceutical businesses or, or California or someplace like that. No, he's from South Carolina. Uh, and he's firmly against Medicare for all, despite the fact that black voters support the, po the policy more than any other ethnic group. And so you might ask, why is this important? Why, why use this particular strategy? Uh, and you need to know a little bit about how uh, bills advance 
to understand why this makes sense. Uh, Without a majority of votes in the House, the only way to bring a bill out of committee onto the floor where it can be debated is if the Speaker of the House agrees to do so. So that's why hashtag force the vote is all about putting pressure on Nancy Pelosi, because that is the person who has to bring the bill out of committee. And Brianna Joy Gray writes in her piece in Current Affairs that that we need to do this. We need to do this now because uh, without it, without this kind of pressure campaign, elected Democrats will never be made to answer for why they stand well to the right of the public on the need for universal health care. But then it all blew up. Okay. Uh, Chargers running back Justin Jackson tweeted out. Uh, earlier this week, he said, if AOC and the squad don't do what Jimmy Dore has suggested and withhold their vote for Pelosi for speakership, unless Medicare for all gets uh, brought to the floor for a vote, they will be revealing themselves. Power concedes nothing without a demand, says Justin Jackson. And myself, I agree with the people. Of course, I'm I'm behind this measure, I think we have to force a vote. If we don't force a vote, either now, tomorrow, next week, or within my lifetime, we're not going to ever get a vote. They're not going to just hand us a vote. They're not going to hand you health care. You get to fight for it. So, I mean, that's what we're here to do is we're here to vote for it. In response to Justin Jackson, AOC tried to say that if they were to try and hashtag force a vote, that they would lose leverage in the House. She also said, oh, we could lose committee assignments. And by the way, why don't you just advocate for something like $15 minimum wage? You know, do something like that that's doable. And it really kind of makes you wonder what happened to the AOC that, you know, was elected initially. Because this does not sound like the AOC that was elected initially. And I think that she's honestly full of shit on on this particular point right here. And Aaron Maté, as Brianna Joy Gray quotes in the article, he had a great response to this. He said, how does losing a vote on Medicare for all take away your advantage to push for things that can happen? You know, as if forcing a vote on Medicare for all would somehow take $15 minimum wage off the table. You know, If these people actually are for things that are supposed to help us and remember they're elected to represent us, uh, then then how how would that how does that math even work out? Mate continues, he says, by the way, I don't understand how you're drawing a connection between progressive leverage and winning a $15 minimum wage. Biden already supports a $15 minimum wage. It won't take progressive leverage to hold him and Pelosi to something that Biden already supports. It's the Senate that will decide it. And so Bree goes on to say that that this is different than other kinds of progressive priorities, such as student debt cancellation and provision of stimulus or COVID relief checks, that this particular issue requires a, uh, a the floor vote to be initiated by Nancy Pelosi. Those other uh, progressive uh, policy matters, 
those can be initiated in other ways. And we've talked about this with the day one agenda, especially with regard to uh, uh, COVID relief and student loan cancellation. That can be handled in the executive branch exclusively. And the laws were written in that way for a reason so that the executive could do administrative uh, uh mechanics on these particular laws. Now, here's the argument fleshed out in a nutshell. Comprehensive health care coverage is the most pressing political issue of the moment because of the pandemic and also just because we need uh, universal health care. But since the beginning of this pandemic, over 14 million Americans have been kicked off their employer-based health care insurance as they lost their jobs to the shutdown. After a Democratic primary race in which nearly every candidate fought to protect the private health care industry on the grounds that voters deserved a choice, millions of Americans are now experiencing the, the cruel caprice of a system that links health care access to one's ability to work. And she continues, perhaps unsurprisingly, Support for Medicare for All has reached historic highs in public opinion. Uh, Even a Fox News exit poll, Fox News, showed that 72% of Americans support a single-payer system, and impressively, about half of Republicans support Medicare for All. But importantly for the purposes of the door proposition, the force the vote, a whopping 88% of Democrats support the policy. A floor vote on uh, Jaya Powell's bill could capitalize on the public's overwhelming approval for Medicare for all. Now this just makes decent sense. This is just good sense as, as policy, of course, but it's also good politics. Perhaps the weakest argument that I've heard against force the vote is that even if it happened, it wouldn't get any coverage in the media. Uh, Critics of the plan argue that demanding a floor vote for the bill that won't pass the House, much less the Senate, wastes progressives' political capital, as if political capital is a pile of stuff that you have sitting in a corner, and once you use some of it, it's gone and it never replenishes. Uh, I, I, I... I've never actually seen political capital like in real life, uh, at least the way that it's described here. Um, But I'm pretty sure that political capital is kind of like muscles, you know, and you can think of it as political muscle. And if you don't use your muscles, they atrophy. So you gotta you gotta get out there. You gotta flex your muscles. You gotta actually use your body in order for your body to be good to you. And I think that that's a much better me- uh, metaphor for uh, political strength than capital, as if it's a pile of money that goes away and it never comes back. So Ryan Grimm, who's a great reporter over at the Intercept, but is prone to having some bad takes every now and then. Uh, he said, and, and this is probably the worst take of all, he says, we already know who supports Medicare for all. And he says, I can promise you if it was brought to the floor through a force the vote uh, approach, it would get zero press coverage because the press doesn't cover bills that can't p- pass both chambers. 
and this is really stupid, like on so many levels, but uh, just recently we saw a lot of coverage on a House bill decriminalizing marijuana, which was covered widely in in uh, mainstream news, cable news, um, even though it didn't have bipartisan support, you know, and it, and it wasn't expected to pass the Senate. Uh, but moreover, the squad, AOC, Katie Porter, you know, all of these, uh, all these folks have a unique ability to attract media attention. So pretty much if you had AOC or any of the squad facing off with Mama Bear, Nancy Pelosi, you would have all kinds of media coverage. You couldn't keep the media away. That's the type of stuff that they live for. Uh, but also you have to take into account what the moment is and this moment that we're in, this pandemic with mass unemployment and loss of employer-based health coverage is absolutely unique. And this is what the conservatives really hate about this is that the pandemic has stripped the Democrats of one of their most potent arguments against Medicare for all, which is that maintaining the for-profit healthcare system offers much desired stability, stability for the insurance companies to just get money for nothing. Right. Uh, Commitments to cover COVID-related costs have exposed the hypocrisy inherent in defensive of defenses of our current system. The admission by party leadership that COVID treatment should be free for all is a slippery slope to uni universal coverage. And I think everybody recognizes this because, after all, it's not more inhumane to deny COVID treatment to those who can't pay for it than it is to deny uh, cancer treatment for patients who can't afford that. Uh, and by the way, cancer is the primary cause of bankruptcy in America. You can say that medical bankruptcy is is one of the, the leading kinds of bankruptcy, is the leading kind of bank bankruptcy, but if you open up those numbers and you look at them, it's actually cancer, uh, which leads the... Uh, uh, the reason for having to run up those, those bills. And we need to take into account that we lost, there were no coattails in this election. We lost seats. We lost house seats in this presidential cycle. Almost always after a new president from a particular party, whichever party is elected, then that party loses seats in the next midterm election. So, Chances are we are going to get wiped out of power in 2022. In just two years, the Democrats are going to get wiped out in the House. They will either lose their majority and their speakership. Okay. The only time the progressives are going to have any power is right now at this moment. That's why this is so important. That is why force the vote is, it is, is of this moment of this time for us right now. We don't have next year. We don't have two years from now. We've got to do this now. And, you know, you've got a lot of people saying, well, you could do this or you could do that. There's these little tweaks around the edges and yada, yada, yada. But the fact is, is that the arguments should always be both and and not either or. If you want to come to the table with, oh, here's another way to do it or, you know, this is, I, I favor this approach over that approach. 
fine. It's both and. It's not either or. Right now, you've got progressives buzzing with excitement because Democrats might, for once, do something bold. They might fight for something, not because of the cost-benefit analysis demands it, but despite the potential and political costs. That's called believing in something. That's called having principles. That's called having a, a, a moral backbone. Uh, and someone I think really hit this nail on the head was uh, Kyle Kalinske. He, he quoted or he tweeted out, if your politics comes from a place of principle, then all the strategy talk is pretty silly anyway. If you believe in something, you fight for it. You dot every I and you cross every T. If you lose, okay. But the act of doing everything in your power to achieve it is the definition of morality. And just, you know, one of the things I really like about Kyle Kalinske, you know, his, his show is called Secular Talk. He's one of these people who, you know, comes from a background where you were uh, shoulder to shoulder and bristling with uh, religious conservatives. And so, you know, when he stepped into the media sphere, he stepped in with this idea of um, secularism and humanism. And what I love about that is that his views, they, he keeps himself centered in what's moral and what is, what is right. You know, what, what are the ethics of a particular um, policy position or a particular strategy or whatever. And I think that that's what people are craving right now. You know, we're tired of all of this empty transactionalism. And honestly, we need to get some stuff done. Our country is falling apart. Our people are falling apart. We're fixing to have more homeless than ever before in our entire history. Uh, we have now lost more people to COVID than were killed uh, in World War II. American soldiers killed in World War II. We've lost more more people to COVID now. And another mid-century, mid-American century comparison is we're fixing to enter a depression that is likely to make the Great Depression of the late 20s and early 30s look like child's play. So we got to do something and it's got to be, uh, we got to have some vision and, and, and we got to really swing for the fences. And so to that point, uh, in her response to Justin Jackson, AOC argued that, quote, the opportunity cost was too high for a floor vote um, for a bill that ultimately wouldn't pass. She said, quote, the Dems votes aren't there yet. Why risk negative press from a failed vote if a clean victory is in sight? But a lengthy delay risks wasting the leverage progressives get from a narrow House majority and the exigency of the pandemic. So in other words, it's precisely because we, we won't have the votes in the future that we need to do it now. Embry points out, uh, if barely half of House Democrats are willing to co-sponsor Medicare for all right now, even while it has the support of 88% of Democratic voters during a global pandemic, what are the odds the holdouts will be more amenable once a vaccine is distributed and life begins to normalize? 
And here's the thing. Even a failing floor vote would force Democrats to own their opposition to a life-saving popular policy, and it would expose those House Democratic members who are thought to have co-sponsored Medicare for All simply to burnish their bona fides uh, with with regard to health care. For example, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker co-sponsored the Senate version of the bill, but reversed their positions during their presidential campaign. So that's that's one of those times when when people co-sponsor something and it really doesn't mean anything. Uh, Forcing a vote on uh, H.R. 1384, which is Medicare for all the JPL bill would pressure House Democrats to either support the bill Essentially, it's it's Fisher cut bait, you know, either support the vote, the the bill or defend your no votes uh, as single payers popularity spikes. And here's something we all know, Uh, the desire to push Pelosi into allowing a vote and to have hearings in uh, in the House on Medicare for all is born out of a longstanding frustration with the media, which historically shields Democrats from accountability. Now. That sentence goes on in, in, in Bree's piece right here. But I think you could end it there. I think you could say uh, the, that the media historically shields Democrats from accountability, period. But what Bree says is uh, shields Democrats from accountability to their constituents when it comes to health care. Mainstream outlets rarely challenge anti-Medicare for all Democrats on why they're bearish on the policy their constituents overwhelmingly support. And pundits on liberal networks regularly adopt disproven right-wing talking points about the affordability of the program. Full stop, y'all. They just lie about it. They just freaking lie about it. Now... According to the Center for Responsive Politics, healthcare companies spent just shy of $568 million on lobbying in 2018, more than any other industry. And uh, you might recall, as Bernie's, uh, Bernie Sanders's primary campaign ramped up in the first quarter of 2019, the number of organizations hiring lobbyists to oppose Medicare for all increased by a factor of seven, a factor of seven. So imagine all the lobbyists who were hired uh, to, to make sure that you and your family can't see a doctor. Take, take that whole number of lobbyists. Now, step and repeat that seven times. That is how scary Bernie Sanders was to the uh, pharmaceutical industry and to healthcare or, or to health insurance companies. And that's how terrified these people are of forcing a vote. They don't want you to talk about it. They want you to forget about it. They would, they're actually probably pretty glad that no one can travel and go to other countries and see what other people live like when uh, they actually have health care because they want you to forget about it and keep sending them $25,000 a year for your insurance. Thank you very much. And you don't get to use it either. My thoughts on this are very simple. This is a very simple demand. It is a very simple process. Just do it and get it done. It is absolutely without merit uh, to to keep putting this off. Not while we've lost more people than have died in World War II. 
not while we're getting ready to head into another Great Depression. We, we have the ability to fix this, and we should do that. Force the vote and keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing until this happens. Because, look, we're not in this to make friends. We're not here. This, this, we're, we're not playing politics. You know, a lot of people are under the uh, illusion that politics is like some kind of team sport. And it's either the red team or the blue team. And and uh, you either win or lose at the end of the day. And that's really not how it is. We have things that we fight for. This is a struggle. It is not a team sport. Uh, it is a struggle. And, you know, if you bring something up for a vote and you don't, get the votes that you want for that thing, you go on to fight another day. You're not kicked out of the league. You're not, you know, uh, you know benched or, or anything like that. That's not the way that works. Although they would like you to think that that's the way that works. Um, so anyway, they're not going to give it to you. Uh, no matter how politely you ask, you've got to fight. Sorry. That's the only way to do it. You got to fight for it. Let's force this vote and let's get it done. All right. Let's take a break and come back. And we're going to have Jerry Brown talking about this new class that he is offering in, in the January. Here we go. So, ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, let me introduce Professor Dr. Jerry Brown, who has been doing research on consciousness and the experience that can help human beings have a much better relationship with the world, with themselves, uh, and with the, this marvelous universe we're in. Dr. Brown. Hello, Rick. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, this is a course on uh, hallucinogens and culture that actually I first designed and started teaching at FIU way back in 1975. And uh, it went on annually. Uh, I retired from FIU formally as a founding professor of anthropology in 2014. But due to the psychedelic renaissance and all of the breakthroughs that are taking place regarding psychedelics' ability to treat mental illness, including addiction and depression and anxiety among terminally ill patients and PT, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder among vets and first responders. The chairman of my department in global and sociocultural studies at FIU asked me to come back and teach this course. So what I've done is I've updated it and expanded it, expanded the course um, to be a course on psychedelics past, present, and future. Uh, the course has three sections. The first part is the first religion, psychedelics and shamanism and world religion. The second part is about the psychedelic renaissance, the breakthroughs in clinical research uh, taking place at Johns Hopkins and other universities and in neuroimaging of the brain on psychedelics, including psilocybin and LSD. And the third part is the future of psychedelics. Uh, the uh, possibility 
of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy centers uh, opening their use someday uh, in the not-too-distant future, uh, their use in creativity and spirituality, the decriminalization movements that are going on around the country, and even careers that are opening up both in nonprofits and businesses that are moving in to the area of psychedelics because, for example, depression uh, affects 300 million people worldwide. So the ability of psychedelics in one or two sessions to alleviate depression, uh, this is a great business opportunity as well as a healing opportunity. So the course deals with psychedelics past, present, and future. Now let me ask you, although the course is through Florida International University, I'm sure it's available beyond that area through internet mediation. Is that true? Yes, it's, uh, Rick, it's a completely online course. So anyone, first of all, FIU students can take it, but any uh, person in Florida can enroll for the course and does not have to be accepted at FIU. In other words, they can enroll as a non-degree seeking student. I don't know if you can put uh, links up there, but if, if someone were to Google FIU GSS Courses Spring 2021, you'll see my course on hallucinogens and culture, and there's a place. Of course, uh, given that FIU is a public state university, the course is uh, much more affordable for people who are residents of the state of Florida. That said, anyone anywhere in the world can uh, sign up and take this course. You know, it, it's such a revolutionary topic in a lot of ways. It, it really you know, transcends physiology, uh, cultural anthropology, biochemistry, uh, psychology, anthropology. Uh, this is such an interesting synergy and I think many of us will agree it, it can be such a helpful way of understanding this experience we have of, of life and, and our relations to the, the broader universe. Uh, it must give you great heart to see some of these uh, silly restrictions being lifted. And uh, what, what a great time to be an educator in this arena. Oh, absolutely. The reality is that uh, anthropology in and of itself is an interdisciplinary field. It draws on many, on, on archaeology, on biology, on culture, on linguistics to address and solve problems. The study of psychedelics is definitely interdisciplinary. Uh, my own work written up with my wife Julie on the psychedelic gospels about uh, psychoactive mushroom images in Christian art, it draws on theology, it draws on church history, it draws on art history, it draws on ethnobotany, mycology, the study and identification of mushrooms. So uh, criminal justice, the decriminalization movements that are, are going on, and certain states have already lifted penalties for marijuana users and erased their criminal records. So yes, it is. Just as the microscope opened up vast areas and improved human well-being in biology, just as the telescope 
has opened up uh, incredible vistas and understanding the universe in uh, astrology, so psychedelics offer us a, a super highway into the mind and into the unconscious. And literally, we just have our toe in the water of the possibilities that using psychedelics for research, for healing, for spirituality, for creativity, for scientific problem solving, we're just beginning now as the research prohibitions have been lifted at certain universities like Johns Hopkins and NYU, we're just beginning to explore these things. And there's no doubt about it. It's a very exciting time to be in the field. Having started out uh, with our own psychedelic experience, my wife, Julie, my wife and co-author, Julie, in the 60s, and myself in the 1970s, we are literally amazed how far things have come and very grateful uh, to have lived long enough to see uh, psychedelics beginning to take their place in a uh, rightful place in American and world culture. Uh, the novelist F. Scott Fitzgerald said, there's no second act in American lives. Well, uh, fortunately, psychedelics is getting a second act uh, due to the scientific and medical breakthroughs. And uh, it's, it's an honor and uh, a scientific joy to, to witness these developments. Uh, Dr. Brown, as a, uh, as a person who's done some modest research on my own in this arena, I'm wondering if, if I could get you to speculate just a little bit on, on a topic that I like to think of as the cartography of consciousness. As, as you have seen through your own researches, uh, there is so much yet to know about perception, about states of consciousness, about states of consciousness mediated through pharmacology and, and related uh, substance use. Do you see a time when we'll have a much clearer grasp of what consciousness is and the various states of consciousness, uh, I think mapped in large part through experiments like these? Well, one could say, uh, just as Magellan and people who first traveled around the world, the early conquistadors and explorers who bought, brought back tales of the new world and actually uh, mapped the, uh, the worlds that were, were being discovered. I think we're seeing that happening now uh, with psychedelics. We're seeing a neural imaging component with magnetic resonance imaging being done at Imperial College in London, where they can actually see the, what happens to the neural pathways as they literally expand in the brain. And by, I mean, by that I mean new neural pathways are traveled by the mind under the influence of LSD and magic mushrooms, uh, psilocybin. And I'm very struck by the report of Stanislav Grof, the father of LSD psychotherapy, who has worked and researched in this area for six decades. And he came to the conclusion that, look, we are not simply uh, m minds who have uh, human beings with an advanced biochemical computer uh, in our, you know, in our skulls, 
we are actually limitless fields of consciousness, part of a of a intelligence that permeates the entire universe. So just as your TV is not the program that you see through the TV, so your brain is not the entirety of consciousness that is available. And as we expand our awareness, we definitely are developing a brand new map of the mind. And again, uh, we're at the beginnings of this exploration. Well, sir, that sounds like the most interesting course I could possibly imagine. And uh, to see anthropology expanding in this, this whole new region uh, of awareness, and uh, I, I think the potential is just amazing, and, I, and it's such an honor to have someone who's doing research in this arena. Um, when does this, this course start, and how long is it? Uh, enrollment is open right now. Uh, if you are able to put some links up, uh, that would be great for your listeners. We'll Otherwise, do that. They can Google. Oh, great. Uh, so enrollment is open right now for FIU students. Uh, other people who register through the links uh, that uh, I've made available to you, uh, enrollment actually begins January 7th. You'll be uh, registered to take courses at FIU. You can enroll on January 7th, and the course actually starts on January 11th and runs a full semester for 15 weeks. Now, uh, there's a variety of different types of online courses. Is this one that is, uh, let me put it uh, simply, is it occur in real time or can one access it uh, in a, in a time-free uh, mediation? Yeah, uh, it's in uh, time-free. In other words, mm -hmm. there's no, it's all online with COVID. Most of the courses are going online at the FIU and throughout the state of Florida. So it is completely online. Students can access the uh, reading materials. They can access the video presentations that I, and I've also had the good fortune to interview eminent uh, scholars in the field of psychedelics, one of the world's leaders in microdosing, one of the world's leaders on psychedelics in ancient Greek culture, one of the leaders in the field of uh, exploration of shamanism, um, the, uh, our ancient religion that uses psychedelics. So all of this is available online. Uh, as are the exams, a student can take the course within their own time frame. Well, that sounds really interesting, sir. I, I think I may even be able to um, avail myself of that course myself. It sounds absolutely intriguing. Uh, if you will send me those links, I'll be glad to put them up as part of the show and part of our outreach to the audience. Thank you so much, Dr. Brown, and uh, I wish you every success in your continued research. Oh, it's a pleasure, and I appreciate your interest in the field and you're sharing this information with your listeners. Thank you so much, Rick. Sir, an honor. Always wonderful to talk to you. Have a wonderful day, sir. You, you as well. Have a happy holiday. Happy holiday.
right. And I've got those links or a link up in the show notes and uh, that should show up at, uh, for you now. If not, reload your browser. Uh, okay. We've got the justice report coming up here in just a moment. I'm going to bring, I'm going to be back in just a second with Janine Maloff. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a greasy black heel. Hey there, Judine. Hey, Brooke. Oh, love Mr. Grinch. And what we're going to talk about tonight are the Grinches in D.C., both on the Democratic and Republican side of the aisle. And this is regarding the COVID relief bill that they are pushing through or trying to push through. And a part of it that received practically no coverage, especially in the mainstream television media. And that's the Corporate Liability Shield. It effectively strips us of our rights. And I asked you, I thank you, I asked you to push, put that Mr. Grinch song on because just the stinginess, the selfishness of the corporate class puts the Grinch to shame. So this is about the Corporate Liability Shield. That should be noted that the original version, which was um, uh, basically put together by McConnell, uh, and Cornyn, Senator Cornyn of Texas, was removed from the corporate relief bill for the time being, and it was replaced with a version that still hurts workers. And that version reflects the um, <clears throat> the attempted compromise, if you will, uh, from Mitt Romney and so-called Democrat Joe Manchin, especially Joe Manchin. Now, this issue is not going to go away, and those who propose such an illegitimate get-out-of-jail-free card for multi-billion dollar corporations must be held accountable. Furthermore, the corporate liability shield language was initially ghostwritten by our slimy friend at ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, and partially sponsored by the Cokes. The fact that no mainstream television outlet, including Rachel Maddow, included this vital information only demonstrates how mainstream TV news has been reduced to stenography. Now the report. Now, in order to look into this compromise, I made three on-the-record contact attempts via phone to contact the Democrat, Senator Joe Manchin, who is really the linchpin of this this compromise uh, corporate liability shield, as well as Senate, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. To date, no response has been received from either office. Those offices are aware that this episode on the corporate shield provision of the alleged COVID relief bill is airing tonight. I chose those two senators as Joe Manchin took the lead on this abominable surrender of worker rights during this deadly pandemic and as Chuck Schumer is the Democratic Senate leader. It was the alleged compromise plan of Manchin-Romney that was mentioned on mainstream TV news like in a blip. I didn't bother to contact Senator McConnell or Cornyn's office on the original plan. There was so much bluster about this foe, this false compromise, that McConnell and Cornyn's original plan was basically ignored. In fact, the actual group that authored the corporate liability shield 
Again, never, main, ma never mentioned on mainstream news, and that group was ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. They are the original authors of this idea. And, the, and ALEC is managed by a couple of attorneys at the law firm of Shook, Hardy, and Bacon. And we'll be talking about that soon. So the COVID relief bill is being offered by a bipartisan group of senators. And it's not merely a wolf in sheep's clothing. It is a death sentence to workers being offered as honest medicine. Let me explain. Rather than provide dire assistance to the average American who is not part of the billionaire class and is not an obedient handmaiden to the rich, this bill contains a provision that would strip every worker of any right to sue an employer who knowingly places them in harm's way. Regardless what version Congress adopts, whether it's the original McConnell Cornyn version or the Mansion Romney flavor, the intent is to reduce workers to disposable objects, uh, in other words, acceptable collateral damage. This, in my opinion, is why McConnell kept turning down every COVID relief bill that hit his desk. In my opinion, I suspect he wanted to wait until the American public was so desperate, many hungry and homeless, that they would willingly sign away their legal rights for any small measure of relief. So let's look at this provision, what it would mean legally, for workers and employers, and how this corporate liability shield was a major GOP wet dream, who wrote it, and what any of us can do to end this tyranny. So David Sirota of the Daily Poster fired the first warning shot about this. He, um, he uh, wrote a bill, I mean, sorry, wrote an article, sent a proposal would retroactively shield corporations from all COVID lawsuits. So this corporate liability shield does have to do with COVID. Now, Excuse me. The report was written by Andrew Perez, Julia Rock, and David Sirota. And Sirota obtained a draft of the bill. And what it would do is it would shield healthcare executives. It would really any any corporation actually. It would limit enforcement of the Civil Rights Act. And it would also give the Attorney General the power to punish workers and customers who sue corporations. No, I'm not making this up. <clears throat> Whatever we don't get through tonight, we'll get through next week. So the draft legislation has been circulating. Basically, the corporate liability shield is just that. It would shield employers and healthcare industry executives from legal consequences of COVID. And that's particularly scary. The obvious that it would shield workers if, for, for, for instance, they're uh, – their employer claimed that they had did due diligence, they just couldn't get enough uh, masks, then you can't sue them. But what about these healthcare industry executives? Would it, one question is, would it shield them from denying any coverage on COVID therapeutics that right now only the rich get? Could be. We don't know for sure. But when their business decisions injure or kill workers, or customers or patients during COVID, um, they would be shielded. <clears throat> now, this is being passed on as a moderate compromise, but it's not a, it's nothing moderate about it. In fact, there was a Harvard study that was um, published, and it showed a surge in worker COVID deaths following their request for government regulators' help. Seriously. Huffington Post reported this past Monday um, that Sen Democratic Senator Joe Manchin joined the GOP 
and backing corporate immunity legislation on COVID. And the draft of the legislative language that the Daily Poster, David Sirota, uh, basically obtained involves the following. I'm just reading straight from this. It would, quote, shield companies from all coronavirus-related actions retroactively for at least one year or until the pandemic is over, except in cases of, quote, gross negligence. Most, corona, I'm sorry, most coronavirus-related lawsuits would be forced into federal courts, which are considered more friendly to business interests, too. It would, quote, restrict the enforcement of long-standing laws, such as the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970, which we know as OSHA, and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, when companies say they are attempting to comply with government's coronavirus guidance. Three, and I'm reading straight from it, quote, it would empower the United States Attorney General to deem coronavirus-related lawsuits from workers, customers, and attorneys meritless, and then file civil actions against them as retribution. In order to vindicate the public interest, courts would be allowed to fine respondents up to $50,000. That means the U.S. Attorney General could literally attack workers, customers, or attorneys who file a, a, a lawsuit against a, co a corporation that the AG, I guess, arbitrarily deems is meritless, and then the AG can find the people that have been already uh, damaged $50,000. First of all, the Attorney General's office is supposed to be concerned only with um, criminal law. Why is it being involved in civil law? It, it's really odd. And number four, again, it would, quote, shield health care executives from lawsuits their language copied word for word from a statute passed in New York by Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo amid a spate of COVID deaths in that state's nursing homes. So once again, both parties are, are guilty. And what this would do is it, it would, quote, substantially immunize businesses from risky conduct. Now the legislation further, okay, they, they can be sued but only if the employer or the corporation is found guilty of what's called gross negligence. So what's gross negligence? The legislation defines gross negligence as, quote, a conscious, voluntary act or omission in reckless disregard of, A, a legal duty, B, the consequences to another party, and C, applicable government standards and guidance, end quote. But again, this is pretty loosey-goosey. Now, a former National Labor Relations Board official who is now a professor at the University of Wyoming College of Law, Michael Duff, basically was quoted as saying, we are wiping out the laws of negligence. As a practical matter, we are substantially immunizing businesses from risky conduct. What they want to do in this bill is throw every lawsuit out before it conceivably gets to a jury. It means that a judge has the authority to dismiss a case right up front because there's no way that plaintiffs are going to be able to meet this standard gross negligence, end quote. <clears throat> and Duff also added that the provision that gave the Attorney General the power to punish plaintiffs, Duff said it's, quote, a bald-faced threat of reprisal for having the temerity to pursue rights, end quote. And I rightfully agree with him. Um, and again, this has been snuck in 
And it should be noted, once again, that the corporate liability shield was the original plan, the McConnell-John Cornyn plan, was, was going to be enacted for four years. And it was modified to a single year. But once it's pushed into law, it would be difficult to stop. Um, once something like that is in law, they just keep extending it. The fact is, this should never have been suggested. Neither Congress, nor the President, nor the courts have the legitimate right to sign away someone else's rights. And that is effectively what the corporate liability shield would do. And both Democrats and Republicans have signed on to this. And that is vile. So, you know, you saw earlier in the week this bipartisan group, Mitt Romney, Joe Manchin, you saw Susan Collins smiling and twittering on like a little moron. And the fact is that this bipartisan group, which was led by Mitt Romney for the GOP and Joe Manchin for the Democrats, was nothing but pure theater. All right? Again, in my opinion, I think they waited until the American public was so desperate they would sign away their rights for a paltry check. And I don't know why Manchin's a Democrat, actually. And here's the thing. Manchin originally was the only Democrat who supported the new version with the clampdown on lawsuits. Apparently, Joe Manchin was key to this. All right. According to Senator Rob Portman, Republican from Ohio, quote, we didn't quite get there, although thanks to Joe Manchin, it's bipartisan, end quote. And once again, yes, it's modified to last only one year instead of four, but the summary of the proposal suggested that it kept many of the core provisions of the original McConnell-Cornyn version. It's shift, again, shifting cases from federal to, from state courts to federal, and so on and so forth. And, you know, once again, there is nothing good about this. Um, Again, House Speaker Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Schumer endorsed the Manchin-Romney framework, and they rejected McConnell's call to scuttle talks. Why in the world are Pelosi and Schumer endorsing this? Why are they calling themselves Democrats? Whose side are they on? And, you know, once again, um, you know, Schumer praised the bipartisan group's progress this past Monday. Um, but he was quoted as saying, quote, there is no agreement on corporate immunity, end quote. Again, not hard enough. There should be no corporate immunity, period. So, you know, what was in the original McConnell-Cornyn corporate liability shield proposal? Well, it was really radical. It would substantially raise the bar for workers and consumers, and this part was kept. Um, it would block lawsuits and government enforcement, and not only to COVID, but related to a whole lot of employment laws. So what does the new compromise proposal say, and why weren't we apprised of this? <clears throat> the compromise would still protect employers from any liability under labor standards if the case involved coronavirus, as long as they were, quote, trying to conform to public health standards and guidance, end quote. And that's according to a summary. That's about as much as we know, because... The senators didn't release that many details at all, but the language is close to the text of the bill that was released by McConnell and Cornyn months ago. And again, why should senators and congressmen be allowed to keep this secret from the public as they sign away our rights? The idea that the Department of Justice can still go after those who claim damage by their employers, isn't this a conflict? 
So, you know, it also says the Justice Department not only could prosecute um, em- employees or customers that want to sue a corporation, but it could also prosecute the attorneys representing them who, according to send, quote, meritless demand letters, end quote. Who decides what's meritless? Okay, it's arbitrary and capricious. What criterion do they use in the determination of the status of meritless? Not, it's not said. And again, why should corporate billion-dollar defendants have options that the plaintiffs are denied, such as moving to federal court without having to go through local and state court first? Now, Dick Durbin did protest a little bit. He said, quote, basically it would have made it so difficult, if not impossible, for someone to file a lawsuit, not just prevail in a lawsuit, but to file a lawsuit. They said that they even said that the regulatory agencies of government could not regulate any businesses on the subject of COVID-19 during this period of time, and it really is an invitation for bad conduct, end quote. Well, I'm glad Senator German woke up a little bit. The FLCIO, Labor Federation, and other liberal groups lined up against the whole idea of a liability shield, basically saying it's going to give corporations uh, a license to ignore safety, obviously. Worker safety um, advocates warned that this proposal would effectively dismantle OSHA protections for workers, and it would. And basically, big business can do the legal equivalent of a pinky swear regarding the exploring options to comply with safety regulations, and they're off the hook. And that's it. Even in cases where multiple workers died from COVID-19, all right, uh, this, this is a, under the Trump administration, OSHA dialed out, doled out very small fines for COVID hazards, even where multiple workers died from COVID, and that's according to former Obama administration OSHA official Debbie Berkowitz, who is now with the National Employment Law Project. And she broke it down, and she said, this language will make it all but impossible for OSHA to even do that. Um, it would hinder OSHA from enforcing critical whistleblower protections for workers who speak up about coronavirus dangers. It will lead to more illness and death. It allows employers off the hook if they just considered protecting workers and decided not to. Unions and public health experts are begging Biden to stop this. All right? We don't know if Biden's going to do anything about it. So there's more here. Um, it also basically allows uh, the proposal goes beyond safety. It would protect employers from COVID-related claims if it, if it also dovetailed with discrimination law, as well as minimum wage and overtime laws. Um, Jennifer Mathis, who's the, the deputy legal director at the Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law, um, was referencing the Americans with Disability Act. It's included also. And she said, quote, we can't afford for people with disabilities to lose the important protections they, they have now that would enable them to keep their jobs. And she said on a press call that was hosted by Public Citizen, it would be an enormous mistake for Congress to pass the bill with these provisions in it. So, again, this is something, you know, there's new data. What we found is that COVID deaths following a worker's request for help from the very federal safety official that's supposed to help them, um, the deaths actually increased, all right? So this whole idea is just horrible. Harvard analysis of OSHA data during COVID. Um, OSHA complaints 
uh, were ignored and resulted in more COVID-related deaths. Um, you know, in fact, there was, uh, you know, in, they said COVID-related complaints to the agency. There's a quote, there's a correlation between OSHA complaints and COVID-19 mortality. In specific, COVID-related complaints to the agency are correlated with COVID-related deaths 17 days later. Let that sink in. Okay, this is evil. This is basically both parties telling us that we are not only collateral damage, but we are just garbage to be used and nothing else. We're reduced to the This is outrageous, all right? To skip ahead because there's so much more and I can't get through. Alec is behind this. The Akila Lacey this past July did a couple of, did a piece. Um, it's an important report on corporate liability shields origins. Alec is the culprit. Um, the conservative Coke back group. Um, and basically they had their conference past July and, you know, the director, Alec director of public affairs, Dan Reynolds confirmed that Alec was considering a policy on liability protection that hadn't been approved yet. Um, you know, that's as much as they're going to, as they're going to actually admit to, but yeah, the, this whole idea of a corporate liability shield and probably the exact language came straight from Alec. There's no guesswork here. Um, and, you know, the federal push for the corporate liability shield came up to Alec's task force on a May 7th call. And that call was led by Mark Behrens, who is the private sector chair of the task force. And he's also a liability defense attorney and a partner at the litigation firm of Shook, Hardy and Bacon. Behrens has been considered the workhorse of Alec for many years now. He keeps a low profile, but he's the one that writes most of this a lot of times. And, you know, once again, we have this incestuous relationship between lobbyists and, you know, basically what happens in our, in our government. And the corporate liability shield is absolutely no different. Um, you know, again, this is something that we should not even allow. Um, it can undo a lot of even local and state laws as well. Um, California workers could lose protections, according to an article in the LA Times. Um, and that has to do with um, basically OSHA at the state level. Um, they at their state level, they beefed it up, and this would basically, you know, tear it down again. Um, this is basically saying that we are all disposable. Um, we can talk later about how many U.S. senators invest and make fortunes in the same corporations they're trusted to regulate. This should be criminal, but unfortunately, it is not. So the conclusion is this isn't merely about the criminal COVID corporate liability negotiations. Even though this is, it, it's outrageous. It's something that should, it, it, it's something that should be live in infamy. But it's also about the fact that the U.S. Congress, both houses, and both parties have exempted themselves from the laws they make and enforce on the rest of us. So there are two outrages here. The first one is the COVID relief bill that would sign away every American worker's right to sue a criminally negligent employer or the healthcare industry. Lives are at stake here, but the GOP 
and Democratic sellouts like Joe Manchin don't care. In fact, they're laughing at us. They are. The fact that the wholesale negligence of the political and corporate class has contributed to the over 300,000 lives lost in the U.S. thus far doesn't play into their calculus. They are just fine with nurses using trash bags in place of PPE once again. It's all about the Benjamins. To the rich, the average worker is merely a beast of burden or a piece of furniture to be used and discarded like yesterday's trash. The corporate Democrats, like Joe Manchin, are every bit as cruel and corrupt as the GOP of Trump. Every member of Congress that signs on to this liability shield, which is frankly a license to kill by employer negligence and by healthcare negligence, must be held civilly and criminally accountable. No exceptions. None. They are laughing at us. This is outrageous. And they think we're too stupid to figure this out. But this is something nobody gets a liability shield. If you commit a crime or if you're negligent or if I'm negligent, we don't get a liability shield. Why should any corporation? Corporations that are actually better able to lawyer up and keep it stalled in court forever. That's ludicrous. The whole idea of rule of law, and we've discussed this before on this show, is the idea that the law is applied equally the same across the board to everyone, no matter how poor or how rich. There are no exceptions. But this would actually put corporations above the law. And it's very interesting they included healthcare, the healthcare uh, industry as well. So what does that mean then? You know, we know the Affordable Care Act mandates that when it's something like a pandemic, they're supposed to give you the appropriate treatment. What do you define as appropriate? No, this is, this is a, an absolute disgrace. And everyone that signs on to it should be held accountable, civilly and legally. Corporations, like individuals, a corporation is no different than Kyle Rittenhouse. Neither one should be given a license to kill by negligence. No exceptions. And that's my report. Wow, Janine, that was scorching hot, good stuff, and terrifying at the same time. And they're Grinches. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, if if you think about COVID as an emergency that that we need uh, Mm -hmm. the the government to act on, and this is their response, then what is the response going to be to, say, uh, 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 climate change? I mean, it's just, it's it's like all bets are off. We're just, you know, stealing everything. It's, it's like they're, they're, they're on a looting rioting spree. You know, they're scorched earth. We're being, we're being ruled by a den of thieves. And I agree with you. Both parties are culpable and we need to stop this culture of celebrity and hold everybody accountable. It's about what you did, not just what you said. That's right. All right, Janine, we will see you next week. And everybody, don't forget yes. on Thursdays, 8 o'clock, the Environmental Justice Report with Janine. Um, every week, tune into that. And uh, we will 
Wow, it's the 20th. We will see you guys on the other side of the holiday. Bye-bye. Awesome. All right. Bye-bye. See you, Janine. And uh, I'm going to leave you guys with our um, epic outro. So tune in next week and see what it is, uh, see how Christmas went for, for everyone here at Swampy Jays. We'll talk to you then. <laughs>